Hey ladies, how you doing out there, you gangsters and you senior citizens of the world? I just want to let you know that I'm here. I'm starting my new podcast with Anchor. It's free, so I thought, why not give it a try? There's creation tools there that allow you to edit your own podcast right from your phone or computer. And Anchor will distribute my podcast, so it will be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many, many more. You can also make money from your own podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, at home. During the coronavirus epidemic, this is where we're going to be. So, it's a mandatory call to action that we... Take anchor. Regular client. The woman's name was Helen Jewett. Her murder, along with the following trial and her murderer's exoneration, drew groundbreaking public attention. It was the first time a sex crime of this sort was covered extensively in the American press. family in Temple, Maine, Jewett's father was an alcoholic and her mother died when she was young. Helen, whose real name was Dorcas Doyen, decided to call herself Helen Jewett. She frequently changed names, a common practice at the time. Employed at the age of only 12 or 13 in the home of Chief Justice Nathan Weston of the Maine Supreme Judicial Court, Jewett spent the next four years working as a servant girl. As she grew older, she transformed into an assertive young woman and became conscious of her own beauty. As she approached her teens, Helen felt she could better herself by moving to New York City. This she did in 1831. After arriving in the big city, it was not very long at all before her great beauty was noticed by the denizens of the seedier parts of town. She was swiftly enticed to start employment in a bordello operated by a woman calling herself Rosina Townsend, who ran her house on Thomas Street in Lower Manhattan, which catered for the more discerning gentleman in search of female companionship. Helen was earning a very comfortable living as a high-class courtesan in only a short space of time. Which works better for getting rid of nail fungus? So Helen vinegar or tea tree oil. Most doctors tell patients to soak their prostitute. feet for 20 minutes a day. A uh, prostitute who got murdered. And apparently one of the judges, uh, uh, one of the esteemed judges back in the days, owned a brothel. 
Richard Robinson was born in Connecticut in 1818 and apparently received a good education. He, like Helen, had also left his hometown as a teenager to live in New York City and found employment in a dry goods store in Lower Manhattan. In his late teens, Robinson began consorting with a rough crowd and took to using the name Frank Rivers as an alias when he would visit prostitutes. According to some accounts, at the age of 17, he happened to run into Helen Jewett as she was being accosted by a ruffian outside a Manhattan theater. Robinson beat up the thug and Helen, impressed by the strapping teen, gave him her calling card. Robinson began visiting Jewett at the brothel where she worked. Thus began a complicated relationship between the two. Well, I guess we're listening Helen to... Helen and Richard's relationship was a rocky one. This was evident to their mutual friends. According to various accounts, in early April 1836, Helen became convinced that Robinson was planning to marry another woman, and she began threatening him. It was also suggested that Robinson had been embezzling money to lavish on Helen, and that he had become worried that she would expose him. Rosina Townsend claimed that Robinson came to her house late on Saturday night, April the 9th, 1836, and visited Helen. In the early hours of the 10th, Miss Townsend awoke in the middle of the night to the sound of someone trying to get out of the front door, which she always kept locked from the inside. At first, she thought nothing of it and dozed back to sleep. Then she went upstairs to check on the women in her employ. When she reached Helen's room, she noticed smoke billowing out from under the door. Okay. Fire, she cried, fire, fire. Soon the whole house was awake, pouring into the hallways in various stages of undress. Someone quickly ran out and alerted the watchman stationed down the street. While awaiting the watchman to arrive, Rosina gained entry to Helen's room to alert her to the fire. It quickly became apparent to the madam that Helen would not be heeding her calls to rouse herself from bed. on the smoldering bed, her blood pooling onto the floorboards below. Her head had been struck three times with a sharp object, believed to have been a hatchet. Because there were no signs of a struggle, it must be assumed that Helen had not been expecting the vicious attack. 
This was deduced by the position of her lifeless body on the bed. To try and cover up the heinous crime, her murderer had also set fire to the bed. not long after arrived and questioned Rosina Townsend. She recounted the previous evening's events. She recalled Helen had asked her not to admit one of her Saturday night regulars. Another caller would visit her instead. When the man arrived, he covered his face with a cloak, but Rosina recognized him as one of Helen's regular clients, a man named Richard Robinson. Later on the morning of the murder, police went to Richard's lodgings and found him fast asleep and still fully dressed. They roughly awakened him and escorted him to the crime scene, a common practice of the time. Officers were amazed to note his composure and impassivity upon viewing his lover's charred and mutilated corpse. Robinson later told a neighbor, Do you think I would blast my brilliant prospects by so ridiculous an act? I'm a young man of only 19 years of age yesterday, with most brilliant prospects. Police investigating believed it to be an open and shut case. They weren't looking for anyone else in connection to the crime and so promptly arrested Robinson and charged him with murder. On June the 2nd, 1836, his court trial began. The newspapers went crazy over the story. The more weighty of the New York newspapers didn't pick up on the story at first, believing it not worthy of attention. But with little information, penny papers like The Sun, The Courier, and The Inquirer urged its readers to consider how an upstanding and legitimately employed young man like Robinson could possibly be mixed up with murder. They portrayed Helen as a prostitute, but well-read, her closet full of fine gowns, her reputation so very prominent in New York society. Soon it was discovered that facts mattered little, as long as there was the sordid sex side of the case to be gleefully described in papers hot off the press, a topic rarely open to discussion in polite society. This story was a big seller. Editor James Gordon Bennett of the New York Herald viewed the crime scene and reported back in ancient poetic fashion. Slowly I began to discover the lineaments of the corpse as one would the beauties of a statue of marble. Not a vein was to be seen. The body looked as white, as full, as polished as pure Parian marble. The perfect figure, the exquisite limbs, the fine face, the full arms, the beautiful bust, all all surpassing in every respect the Venus de Medici's. I'm asking you to make a donation right now before the official FEC deadline. Wow. And if you do, it will be triple.
playing up the sexual details and lacking other concrete facts, papers turn to blatant fabrication. It seems impossible a loop can be found whereupon to hang a doubt that the life of Miss Jewett was taken by any other hand than his, wrote the son. Others falsified evidence. Bennett of the Herald was accused of paying someone $50 to forge a letter purported to be from the real killer. It was printed, and within a week the paper was selling out, as the daily run was as big as 15,000 copies. The pre-murder levels were only between 1 and 2,000. Eyewitness and circumstantial evidence left little doubt of Robinson's guilt. Over five days, the all-white male jury heard testimony from Rosina Townsend and from Emma French, a prostitute witness who recalled Robinson arriving at the house at 9.30 p.m., the evening of the crime. Another man identified the hatchet as the one missing from his shop. Detectives found a string around the hatchet that matched a loop inside the cloak of Richard, presumably used to conceal the weapon. A 33-year-old grocer by the name of Robert Furlong testified that Robinson had visited his store at 9.30pm on April the 9th, bought a bundle of cigars and proceeded to smoke and chat with the owner. For a time, he even sat back to read the evening post. Furlong said that the young man got up at around 10.15, saying as he left, I believe I'll go home, I am tired. The evidence directly contradicted Emma French's testimony, which claimed Robinson was in the brothel by 9.30 p.m. All of a sudden, Richard Robinson had an alibi. Furlong was rumored to have been paid off. Later, in 1837, his business would fail, and in August 1838, he jumped off a ship to his death. <laughs> After five days and 56 hours in court, and of that time over 10 hours for the prosecution and defense to conclude their cases, the jury retired to consider their verdict. After 15 minutes, they returned with an acquittal. The tabloids exploded with shock. Few had expected the verdict, much less defended it. In one interview after the trial, a reporter asked Robinson whether his conscience troubled him. Robinson replied, not a bit. Did it appear in court that Helen was murdered by me? On the question of the murder weapon, he said only a bungler would have used a dull hatchet to cut up the girl. I would sooner use a jackknife. The first several featured light-hearted flirtation between prostitute and client. But between August and the following April, the letters expressed increasing jealousy and frustration. It was implied that Helen was aware of, and perhaps even engaged in, Richard's nefarious business dealings. In one plea for attention, Helen threatens to expose him. His reply? You were never so foolish as when you threatened me. 
keep quiet until I come on Saturday night, and then we will see if we cannot be better friends thereafter. Do not tell any other person I shall come. decided to reprint the letters in five issues and even pasted copies in their office windows alongside the murder weapon which had been obtained from the district attorney. Crowds of people gathered to witness the disqualified evidence, knowing in their minds that the jury would have reached another verdict if they had been allowed to read this damning evidence. Sometime in the early 20th century, a series of biographies were published detailing Richard Robinson's life after his rapid departure from New York City. Within weeks of his move to Nacogdoches, Texas, he had charmed townspeople enough to act as witness in deeds of sale and other official documents. By 1837, he worked as a saloon proprietor and later as a clerk of the court. He married and owned a series of homes, in addition to 20 slaves. He had become one of the wealthiest men in town. Today I'm going to talk about Sarah Bartman, who's a South African woman. I edited an anthology um, about Sarah Bartman. Um, in 2010, and the good news is that it's actually going to go into paperback probably in September. Maybe you don't know her name, but maybe you've heard of the word hot and top Venus, right? Which is more of the buzzword, I think, that you're going to hear. Um, I choose to use the name Sarah Bartman out of respect, not hot and top Venus, because obviously that, uh, that was a caricature of the real person who we know very little about. Um, but it's important to think about the impact of her life, particularly because even today, her, her word, her story, narratives around her life are constantly repeated in the 21st century. And they're not necessarily really good associations. So I want to talk about that a little bit. Um, so the presentation is called Sarah Bartman, A South African Slave, A Discussion on Gender and Representation. This first image is a British advertisement of the Hot and Tot Venus exhibit. It says on the bottom, Sarki, the Hot and Tot Venus, now exhibiting in London, drawn from life. And so what we have here is a cartoon caricature profile of a naked black woman in some sort of perceived traditional African garb with a huge posterior, right? Um, smoking a pipe and holding some sort of staff. This tells us nothing about Sarah Bartman or Sarki, but it does tell us about the people who are looking at her. It tells us that people like some white people looking at the little girl as swimming. some sort of monstrosity. It tells us that this is a figure that was seen as something that was not beautiful or normal or acceptable. From the 1600s, the British, in their colonizing mission, attempted to vilify the Khoikhoi the Khoi, or Khoisan people based in the Cape region of South Africa, using narratives developed through travel logs and letters from sailors. There has never been a more exploited or abused people 
uh, in terms of images and language. Ultimately, the Hottentot became synonymous or interchangeable with African. Okay? The Hottentots, and I put this in quote, uh, were supposed to mate with the orangutan. The males had a missing testicle, and the women had the famous Hottentot apron, which is an extended labia. Now, these were all fabrications, of course. But what it did was it allowed a language that justified the colonial hierarchy, which put the Khoisan on the bottom. And for European naturalists, the Khoisan were considered the missing link in the great chain of being. It created a language of othering, difference, savagery. And it questioned the very essence of African or Khoi humanity. As the British colonized the Cape region and there was intensified Khoisan resistance from maroon communities in the hills, the gays moved from the male to the Khoisan female. And this is around the 18th century, creating, and this is a quote from Yvette Abrams in South Africa, creating an enduring image of the African woman before the whole world reduced to a body part, essentially her genitals. A language was created about the fabricated Hottentot apron, this extended labia, and the buttocks of these women. They were primitive, hypersexual, dirty, ugly, they exhibited depravity, um, they were an anomaly, they were grotesque, essentially that. And this was all exemplified or culminated in the exhibition of Sarah Bartman in Europe. What we know about Sarah Bartman? Um, she was born around 1789 in the Eastern Cape, and she was from the Quena people, who um, are a small group out of the umbrella of the Khoikhoi or the Khoisan. Her father was a cattle drover and murdered during a Dutch raid, as was her husband, who was said to be a drummer. It was said that she had one child who died as an infant. In her early teens, she was forced to move to Cape Town for work. Though the Dutch were not allowed to enslave the Khoisan, and I put that in quotes. Um, as non-citizens in the Cape, the Khoisan were essentially slaves, and slavery existed in the Cape from 1658 to 1838. Sarah went to work on the farm of a Dutch man. His brother, Henrik Cesar, and his British friend, Alexander Dunlop, found her fascinating. I wonder why. And in 1810, took her, and I will say took as in robbery, as in thievery, as in stolen, she was property, she was moved. Allegedly with a contract that she would receive half the profits and be returned in five years if she agreed to exhibit her body in Europe. To this day, no contract has been found to prove this. And one questions how a slave negotiates a contract, right? In London for two shillings, one could view Sarah performing the Hottentot Venus at number 225 Piccadilly, exhibited in a cage on a stage two feet high along which she was led by her keeper and exhibited like a wild beast, being obliged to wait, stand, or sit as he ordered. She was exhibited virtually naked in skin-colored clothing. She was pinched, prodded, laughed at, sexualized, spat at, ridiculed. But the idea of exotic exhibitions were part of European, especially British culture at that point. Naturalists were in the process of having every fossil, stone, reptile, and human labeled and categorized in Europe. Medical scientists led by Napoleon surgeon George Cuvier codified racial difference and used Bartman's perceived abnormal sexuality found in the study of her genitals to establish normative European self-representation. Hobson notes, quote, 
Bartman became the preeminent example of racial and sexual alterity because of her ridicule and pathologized buttocks. The law case that made her famous. So, Sarah Bartman is famous not because she was exhibited, or at least we know her name, right, in terms of documentation. In fact, there were at least three other hot and hot Venuses after Bartman's death. She was famous because her case was brought before the British judiciary system in November 1810. And so what that means is that at that point, she enters an archive. Do you guys understand that she enters a space where daily there were observers of the court case, people documented what they saw, the public was engaged beyond just her exhibition, but she became a part, a documented and documented how we actually are able to trace her story of her time in in both London and in Paris later. The African Association for Promoting the Discovery of the Interior of Africa brought Bartman's case to court. The claim brought against Bartman's owner, Cesar, a Dutch man, was enslavement and indecency. The judge wanted to ascertain if Bartman was in agreement with her exhibition. To this day, there's no documentation of Bartman's own voice. Nowhere is she in any archive whatsoever. Um, though it was alleged that through a male interpreter, Bartman said she was in agreement and that she was getting money and happy. Um, obviously, if this woman is far away from home, right, she is at the mercy of essentially the man who owns her. And so the fact that she then is in agreement with her with her state or her status is highly questionable simply because what other choice would she have at that, mo that point? Do you understand that? If she's a slave, essentially she's going to do whatever she had been primed to do, even though obviously we have to think about the small moments of agency where she possibly could have resisted in her day-to-day -day life. The case was dropped with a warning of indecency and a mandate that Cesar could no longer exhibit her. So what did he do? Cesar quickly sold her to an Englishman and disappeared. The rest of Sarah's story. After the case, Bartman went underground and was toured along the English countryside. She reappeared briefly in December 1811 in Manchester where she was baptized. This is the moment um, where her name becomes anglicized and so she becomes Sarah instead of Sarki. And in many cases, uh, this is the name that in South Africa, and particularly amongst the Khoisan, they acknowledge this, uh, this English version of her name. And this is the name that they apply to her and use it in documentation throughout South, South Africa. Okay. Um, she was also exhibited in Bath and Limerick, Ireland. She finally resurfaced in Paris in 1814 and was then owned by an animal trainer, S. Ryu. And he was very famous. He had Sarah Bartman. He had a big black bear. That was his thing, right? And so he, he exhibited them together sometimes and separately. She was exhibited daily for 15 months from 11 a.m. to 10 p.m. Also, she began to be shown in private salons. And so what would happen is very wealthy Parisians would contact Esriu. They would book her um, to come as the surprise guest at the end. And she would be essentially paraded into these private homes. Um, and you can imagine what else. Sarah Bartman caused a very interesting and instant fervor in Paris, which was radically different from how the British received her. So Paris took her in more as an exotic or the sexual object to be desired 
and obviously objectified, which was very different from how the British took her in. Um, there was this whole sense of morality and her exhibit being kind of the ground where people either felt that it was indecent or it was an offense to the British uh, sense of morality to exhibit her as a hot and tot Venus, um, and then other people who really found her as entertaining and, and um, an example of a specimen from Africa, right? A live specimen from Africa. So, um, in Paris, there were a number of poems, songs, caricatures, and the famous one-act vaudeville called The Hottentot Venus or The Hatred of the French Woman, and these were all created about her. Now, this vaudeville is very interesting because it was all, I mean, there were many, many theaters that put this uh, version of this vaudeville on, and the, the gist of it was that French women began to get really anxious about the ways that French men began to desire to think about, to fetishize um, Sarah Bartman. Right in public spaces, in the salons, in these, in the exhibits, and so this vaudeville is about uh, this French woman who is supposed to be married, and essentially what she does is she pads her body to look like the hot and tot Venus and blackens her face in this vaudeville as a way to say, okay, well this is what you desire. Maybe I should dress up like the thing that you desire in order for you to marry me. So there were lots of different. Um, Reactions, I think, gendered reactions to Sarah Bartman in in Paris. SRU was paid to make Sarah available for three days in which she was examined, drawn, measured in the Jardin de Plantes in Paris by Cuvayer, who was Napoleon's surgeon, and his associates. It is noted in Cuvayer's writing about her that she was disliked because she refused to show or exhibit her genitals. On or about December 29th in 1815, Sarah Bartman dies. And to this day, there is no formal death certificate, which is very interesting. So the general master narrative around her death says that she died a drunk and a prostitute, right? Ultimately, she was blamed for her own demise, for her own situation. There's no proof of any of this. And so one of the things that really struck me, particularly... Um, in our contemporary times is that how in popular discourse people are so ready to uh, hold on and claim and reiterate, oh, she died a drunk, she died a prostitute. Well, how do we know that? We don't have any evidence of it. But in many cases, making her responsible for her own demise, making her um, the one who, uh, constantly the victim. Do you understand that in a sense where she was always the one wrong and there was no one else attached to her who could have created her situation. Sarah Bartman did not build the boat that took her from Cape Town to London. Do we understand that? Right? And so in many cases, obviously, she managed to survive being exhibited for five years. We know that. Right? She was drawn. Um, she was uh, poked and prodded. She was taken with, through different owners. Essentially, she was bought and sold. Right? We also know that she was in this court case. However, we don't know what her daily life was like, right? We don't know what every day was like. And the fact that she managed to survive five years in that kind of situation tells me that, you know, she had a sense of perseverance. Because many of us would have decided, if I even speak for myself, no, I don't necessarily know how I would have handled being put in a cage and being so far away from home. Do you guys understand that? Right? And she managed to survive that at least for five years. 
Well, the reason why I put this particular tape on is because I listened to the white lady story for so long, but I didn't notice the one thing they had in common was they were both uh, compared to Venus. And the second thing they had in common uh, was that their genitals were destroyed and mutilated after their death and put on display. So I'm going to continue this series with the actual story of Venus so I can understand why they keep comparing uh, beautiful women to Venus and how beautiful was she and then why both prostitutes Venus again so women are from Venus men are from Mars is that is that how that worked let's find out